Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics with me, Steve Richards, the weekly podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in wherever you are around the world and indeed the entire UK. And as ever, in our time together, we have got a hell of a lot to cram in. If it's okay uh, with all of you, I'm going to reflect on two themes and squeeze a third one in. I'm going to look at the inevitable row over the Irish protocol, which is, I think, huge. As big a mountainous object that Brexit has produced. And anyway, I I won't preempt it. That's one of the things I'm going to be talking about. Uh, And squeeze into that a little reflection on the alliances Johnson announced last week, um, a a kind of military alliance with Finland and so on. And then briefly look at uh, Keir Starmer and his uh, declaration that he will resign if charged with a penalty notice by the Durham police, because last week um, I'd recorded the podcast before we got that. And there's one element of it which has been unexplored, only one, because there's been much talk about it. And I'm going to explore, if it's all right with all of you, that hidden element, which I think is quite important and tells us a lot about leadership and the artistry of leadership. After my reflections, uh, we've got some fantastic questions from many of you. Uh, I've had uh, hundreds of emails, and I'm going to get through as many as I can. They are all related to current themes or debates we're having on the podcast. And as ever, they're from all parts of the UK and from the United States, from Europe, and so on. And it gives us a real insight into... um, Uh, many themes and how Britain is perceived abroad and so on. So they're coming up. Before all of that, a few notices. First of all, thank you for subscribing, those of you who do the Rock and Roll Politics Patreon version. Bit of an announcement about bonus podcasts. For new listeners, we've been doing uh, general elections, cinematic kind of elections with mysteries that need exploring and so on. And um, I'm going to take a break from that. I'm going to come back to them because I'm still getting many emails with brilliant suggestions for general elections. But some of you also suggested for a series. Do you remember very early on in this Patreon version? Um, something which is really underexplored the relationship between prime ministers and their chosen special advisers. Much focus is made on their chosen cabinets and so on, but this is where they really have freedom of choice. Those they pick to be close to them through all the twists and turns in number 10. And we're going to look at four relationships. The relationship between Harold Wilson and Marcia Williams, who later became Lady Falconer, really interesting, enigmatic relationship. We're going to look at the relationship between Tony Blair and Alistair Campbell. We're going to explore the relationship between David Cameron and Steve Hilson. That's a really interesting one which shines much light on Cameron. And then we're going to look at Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings. I haven't decided the order yet, but I will announce which of those bonus podcasts you'll get in June next week. So sign up. You get all kinds of other things. Some of you should be getting your mugs soon, the Rock and Roll Politics mugs. And I want you to email me with photos of your mug when it arrives. 
Also, uh, King's Place live on June the 8th. And I've already, I don't usually start planning the themes for these live events until about five minutes beforehand because everything's so fast moving. But some of you have emailed with a request that one of the themes should be, and it will be a lighthearted look at the relationship between parties when they have to be either forced or choose to be in some kind of relationship pre an election or post an election. Who knows where we'll be by June the 8th. But as you've asked for that, some of you who've booked the tickets, that will be one of the themes. And it, again, sheds much light when you look back at certain attempts for Labour and the Lib Dems or other parties to get together. Um, What happens Next, So that'll be one of the themes, but God knows where we'll be with Keir Starmer. He might have been given a two-year jail sentence by then. Also with Johnson, the police investigation, the longest in the history of police investigation, should surely be reaching a denouement. Who knows where we'll be in this battle with the European Union and so on. So there will be other explosive dramas whirling around King's Place on Monday, June the 8th. Do come along. It's also being streamed live if you can't make it to London. And tickets are available on the King's Place website. That's 7 o'clock Wednesday, June the 8th. It's going to be epic. And the last live one in the summer before I go up to the Edinburgh Festival and tickets for those shows are also available on sale live at the space at the Symposium Hall, that lovely theatre in Hill Street in Edinburgh. I'm there from Monday, August the 15th. It's going to be a different show each day, one way or another. Uh, So do come along if you can to those. And if you're up for it, this is easy. Uh, Please leave a review of the podcast, only if you like it, because that gets it to more people in ways, as I've said before, I don't understand. Anyway, that's the assembly notices over with. And thank you if you're going to join in any of those epic events coming up. Now for my reflections. And I thought that with the protocol, I would return us to the historically significant autumn of 2019, when uh, Johnson, and it was Johnson, proposed that his solution to the Irish question was to put a border between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Remember the background. Theresa May had agonised over what to do in relation to the Irish question. It was the great thorny problem in her path ahead. All the other issues had been resolved, is putting it far too strongly. Um, But the deal reached this obstacle. What the heck to do about Northern Ireland and Ireland? And as you will all know, because you are arduous followers of the twists and turns, her solution was for Britain to stay in the customs union, thereby avoiding a border between Northern Ireland and Ireland until, as if by magic, technology solved the question of how you monitor goods going back and forth without a border. Johnson uh, rejected this, and if you remember, came into number 10 in July 2019, declaring outside number 10, 
we're going to get Brexit done, come what may, we're leaving on October the 31st. Incidentally, if you want a barometer for the Johnson Premiership, read that opening statement. There were two elements to it, in effect. A pledge, come what may, to leave the European Union by October the 31st, implying he would leave with no deal, even though there was no majority in the House of Commons then for no deal. It didn't happen. His other pledge was to sort out social care. He didn't have a plan. He pretended to have a plan. And the national insurance rise is going largely on the NHS, not social care. So the two binding elements of that July statement outside number 10 have not been realised. Knowing that he could get no deal and incidentally fearing a no deal, David Frost, old Frosty, Lord Frosty Frost, is being utterly disingenuous in claiming that they had no choice but to reach a deal because that House of Commons would not allow a no deal. We know that's being disingenuous because when Johnson had a majority of 90 as he negotiated the trade deal subsequently with the EU, he threatened again a no deal but didn't go there. In the end, he ordered Lord Frosty Frost to come up with a deal, and that was with a majority of 90. So Johnson knew there's a part of him that is aware of consequences, even if he can't bear facing them. And he knew there had to be some kind of deal. But he couldn't go the May route. Ireland, again, was the thorny question. So he proposed what, incidentally, the EU had originally proposed until Theresa May negotiated a better deal for Britain putting the border between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Now, when you put a border somewhere, it's for a purpose, for checks to take place. Again, a part of Johnson realised that, a part of him didn't dare so. He paraded this deal, claimed there would be no checks, and that was more or less his pitch. Now, what is really interesting is this. There is a mythology about that hung parliament before the December 2019 election that it was impeding all progress with Brexit. That is not the case. When Johnson came back with his deal, which involved a border between Northern Ireland and Great Britain, a lot of Tory MPs who had opposed all other propositions up until that point expressed a willingness to back it. But they wanted time to scrutinise what Johnson had negotiated. And this was the final dispute in that parliament. It's long been forgotten. But if you remember, the House of Commons met on a Saturday to debate Johnson's new proposition. And the issue at hand was how long the House of Commons would have to look at it. And MPs voted to have more time to look at what Johnson had speedily negotiated. And that's what Johnson rejected. He argued subsequently that Parliament was blocking everything. That was not the case. They wanted to scrutinise. And Johnson is afraid of scrutiny. And he knew, because he's not stupid, that if his proposition was scrutinised, there would be questions 
about what would happen at the border. Now, he could lie, as he did to Belfast business people, that there would be no checks. He could lie to interviewers on uh, Sky and the BBC during the December general election of that year that there would be no checks. But if Parliament were to scrutinise in detail, and if, say, a select committee brought in trade experts to analyse what happens at any border, his proposition would have fallen apart then. So the issue was scrutiny. It wasn't that that hung parliament was going to block his latest attempt to deal with Brexit. He ran away from it and called, uh, demanded parliament gave him a general election. And at that point, there was for Britain a tragedy. That proposition of a border between Great Britain and Northern Ireland merited as much scrutiny as Theresa May's proposition that Britain should stay in the customs union until there was some technological way of dealing with it. That proposition, the May proposition, got hours and hours and days and months of parliamentary scrutiny. Remember those endless debates, the votes on her deal, the endless analysis on every broadcast. When this hung parliament agreed to Johnson's proposition that it be dissolved for an election, utterly perverse given that it was previously demanding that his proposition be scrutinised more intensively, that was it for scrutiny. A deal negotiated, do you remember at first he met the Irish leader for a special meeting and put this forward and that was it. A general election took place in which Johnson claimed there was an oven-ready deal, oven-ready, oven-ready, put it in, microwave, put it in, put it in. If it's oven ready, it doesn't really need to go into the microwave when you think about it. Even the kind of metaphors didn't quite stack up. But a terrible sequence happened for the UK. First of all, we had the Lib Dems succumbing to the call for an election. Obviously, Nicola Sturgeon wanted one because she was going to do well. It was before the Alex Salmond court case. But then Labour too succumbed and Johnson got the election. And that was it for scrutiny, an election that arose because a parliament wholly legitimately wanted to look into detail at this historic arrangement and then nothing. That uh, bill uh, after the December 2019 election was rushed through so Britain could leave the EU in January and the trade deal that old Lord Frosty Frost negotiated uh, accountable to Johnson, was not scrutinised at all anywhere. Uh, the Cabinet asked no questions in the year that deal was negotiated. Parliament, if you remember, sat over the Christmas recess for one day to endorse the deal. Labour voted for it. And that was it. And part of the thing that will fascinate historians about the Brexit madness is that disproportionate scrutiny over a Brexit deal that never happened, Theresa May's, and no scrutiny for Johnson's propositions for Northern Ireland and then the trade deal negotiated by Lord Frosty Frost, 
and both paraded as a triumph, both having profound and deeply damaging consequences. So where we are now is that no one still has answered the Irish question. The one posed by Tony Blair and John Major during the Brexit referendum in 2016 and has been asked constantly since. The question that when I had a a breakfast with the then German ambassador in, I think, 2017, he said the UK was least suited for leaving the European Union because of the Irish question. One part of Ireland in the EU, the other part out. And we are seeing the consequences being played out now in Northern Ireland, all of them predicted in advance. And the government or Liz Truss can posture and blame the European Union. But it was a protocol signed up by Lord Frosty Frost and Johnson in an attempt to answer the unanswerable. You have one part of Ireland in the single market, the other out. Where do you put the boundary? And what form does that boundary take? Now, the protocol is about a negotiation over what form it should take. But Johnson will have to compromise if he is to get some sort of working arrangement with this protocol rather than ignite the fury of the United States and a trade war by unilaterally breaking a treaty that he and old Lord Frosty Frost signed. It is a a moment of climactic significance as great as any other in this never-ending Brexit saga, which incidentally shows that Brexit is far from done. I said I was going to mention the uh, deal Johnson signed last week with uh, Finland. Um, And it reminded me of the protocol because Johnson loves the moments of showbiz in politics, the moment where you can parade something without reflecting on the consequences, the mug you get on Patreon, cup of consequences. And I saw him with the uh, Finnish prime minister last week, and of course it looked good. Here he was in Chichilian mode, following through the consequences of Putin's invasion of Ukraine, looking strong and principled and noble. And that's how he appeared when he got his deal after a summit with the Irish Taoiseach in 2019, the autumn of 2019. There the two of them were, we got a deal, we got a deal, forget we're going to leave the customs union, get our freedom back, solve the Irish situation. And of course, now there are consequences. And my worry about the formation of these alliances made in the heat of the Ukrainian crisis is there will be consequences. Um, I refer you to my podcast a couple of weeks ago when I looked at the origins of World War One. And one of the consequences was that the alliances formed without any awareness that a global conflagration might happen triggered such a conflagration. I mean, the UK joined a world war in effect because they were allied to Belgium as one example of many of how these alliances led to something that none of the leaders had contemplated when they negotiated it. And I worry 
about some of the moves that the likes of Johnson are making, partly to save his own political skin, partly because no doubt he does see himself as a Churchillian figure pursuing right against wrong, etc. But there are consequences once you have left the glorious stage when these things are being paraded around. Finally, on consequences this week, and then we move over to all of you. There was one thing, I think, about Keir Starmer's risky move, uh, uh, saying he will resign if the Durham police um, find him guilty, that's been overlooked. There's been much talk about the obvious risk um, that the police are unreliable narrators and could do anything, frankly. The thought processes could be absolutely straight and looking at the evidence, but the thought processes could go, well, look, the Met Police are now being quite tough. We better be seen to be tough. Who knows? But that risk has been much explored. Uh, So have been the upsides that if he is found not to have breached the rules, as he, I know, is confident he hasn't. And he's a lawyer. He's a top lawyer. And he should know. And by the way, how utterly disproportionate this thing is, you know, a kind of drink in some grim office at the end of a long day while you are evidently out on an election trail and the kind of Ibiza-like nightclub scene of Downing Street. But this is the other risk, it seems to me, which has been overlooked. Part of the art of leadership is to appear immortal, as if you are the future forever, and no one in your party can or will look beyond your leadership. And this is what keeps leaders going. It's to some extent what keeps Johnson going. No cabinet minister dares move against him or say anything other than total support for his party and all the rest of it, because they work on the assumption Johnson is staying, with all the powers of patronage that come with that role. And the voters too, for the time being, assume Johnson is carrying on. And that is part of the power of leadership. Now, what Keir Starmer has done by saying he will resign is if the Durham police find him to have been culpable is raise, albeit perhaps fleetingly, a future without him. And in doing so, there have been two consequences. One, those who wonder about a vacancy inevitably talk to others about whether they would stand if there is a leadership contest. And the media, too, begin to reflect. And you can see that in all kinds of columns where candidates have been talked about if there were to be a vacancy. Now, that in itself makes a leader slightly more vulnerable, less immortal as a perceived figure of dominance. And the other consequence is that while this is going on, a leader has inevitably and unavoidably a sort of interim feel about him. So Keir Starmer, for example, gave, I mean, he's not one of life's great orators, but he gave actually uh, his response to the Queen's speech last week in the House of Commons, was uh, widely sort of criticised as lacklustre and so on. It actually was quite a substantial speech where he went much further, if you read it, than this endless repetition of the proposition of a windfall tax on the energy 
companies, turning Labour, as I said last week, into a sort of one policy pressure group rather than the alternative government with a vision for the country on many fronts, which is the art of opposition. But he was widely criticised, I think, because of the way he is perceived at the moment as potentially a leader who might not be around much longer. Now, you know, as I say, he and others are really confident that he will uh, get through this investigation. But that's what happens when a leader raises the possibility that he or she might not be there for very much longer. Look at what happened to Tony Blair when um, he announced that he would fight an election but then would not serve another full term. On one level, it was a statement of the obvious because he had been around for a hell of a long time by then. But when you articulate it, people start to look about who will succeed and when and in what form. And you are weakened as a result. So I think it's quite a risky thing that Keir Starmer has done on quite a few fronts beyond handing your fate to the police. And I can certainly understand he's been criticised unfairly for spending the weekend consulting over this. A weekend over a make or break decision. He announced it on the Monday afternoon. Fair enough. I mean, this is this is quite risky. But I say I think one of the overlooked risks is breaking the spell that you are around forever in the future. Of course, you're not in reality, but that's the spell you cast. Anyway, um, so there are my kind of reflections. I could go on and on about the protocol, on and on and on, as Thatcher used to say. But I suspect at the live show at King's Place, we're going to be looking at where we are uh, with the European Union amongst many other issues. So, uh, but my thought at the moment is to return to the autumn of 2019, where the seeds were sown and how scrutiny was avoided. And isn't it ironic that scrutiny was avoided by a general election where scrutiny should be intense, but actually quite often isn't, especially if you're a conservative prime minister with a very sympathetic media. Anyway, thank you for listening to my reflections. And now, over to your fantastic questions. By the way, if you are running, rowing, baking bread, or the other thing, walking your dog, I'm going to give the email address for questions. Don't stop what you're doing and make a note of the email if you're not sure of it. Come back. It's about 29 minutes in, something like that. 28, 29 minutes in. It's Steve Rick, uh, and that's R-I-C. I got an email, so you've got to spell it out. So it's Steve, then Rick, R-I-C, 1414 at iCloud.com. And do uh, keep your emails coming. We've got some amazing ones this way. I'm going to try and get as, through as many as I can. Forgive me if I don't read it out. I've, I've read them all and I've made notes because they're all in front of me. And so here we go. James Leach uh, has written in and James says, oh, I'm one half of the father and son duo who always come to King's Place. Oh, see you there on June the 8th, James, and your dad. I wanted to ask about Tony Blair specifically, about what you've said about Keir Starmer copying his incremental approach in the build up to 97. Yeah, it seems to me to perhaps an excessive extent uh, Keir Starmer has looked at 97 as a guide. 
But anyway, James says, listening to Blair's old speeches, he sounded much bolder in his rhetoric and moved faster in his Mark Party conferences, speeches to set out a vision. Uh, he was talking about a young country by the second year of his leadership. Yeah, new Britain, new Labour, young country, born again. I remember it. And was charting a course, course to a future. Do you think Starmer is running out of time to make his mark? Yeah, and James mentions, yeah, I got an email from a friend of his, uh, Rob, who's going to be in Edinburgh at the same time as me. So it's amazing how, you know, we can all meet up via this podcast. You are absolutely right, James, that uh, part of Blair's genius as an opposition leader was to make the incremental exciting. The radicalism was quite limited, but he had, and it's you're right to remind me, within the second year of his leadership, um, framed what appeared to be an exciting and enticing vision. Now, when you analyse it, what does it mean, a young country? But it was a part of a sort of argument around modernization after 18 years of conservative rule. Uh, so that's a good point. And Keir Starmer is not uh, – Blair could hold an audience, cast a spell over an audience, and it, it is a real art. Clinton could do it even more extraordinarily. Obama could. Now, Starmer's not ever going to do that. But uh, no, it's not too late for him to make his mark. But absolutely, he needs to move on from clinging to one policy and start outlining a vision and the policies to accompany it and not be paralyzed by focus groups into thinking, oh, my God, we can't do that. We can't do that. We can't do that. And not being obsessed about the red wall. And so when you've got a frame of vision for the country, said last week, the red wall will follow when that's the case. Now, thank you, James. See you at King's Place. Uh, Nick Radcliffe from Edinburgh has some ideas about how you raise money for the NHS, given that a lot of you living here reject co-payments. Some of you from other countries uh, support it, although we're going to hear from Germany later, where not so keen on insurance policies or anything else, but we'll come to that later. So Nick Radcliffe says, oh, looking forward to seeing the Fringe show. Thanks, Nick. See you there. So this is Nick's uh, options. Progressive taxation, but I presume you're saying that's politically impossible. I think it is pretty close to politically impossible in advance of an election. Inheritance tax, yeah, that's that's a good one. But look how Gordon Brown had to run a mile when George Osborne uh, promise to reverse any planned in inheritance tax rises. It's tricky for a Labour leader to do it in advance of an election, especially with the newspapers we've got. Transfer much taxation to carbon and related pollutants. Uh, yeah, a bit of that is already happening. But look at the problems with some of the things that happened there. You know, fuel duty, for example, has had to be frozen because of the cost of living crisis. All these are tricky, Nick. Never mind the small amounts of money lost on benefit fraud go properly after the much larger amounts of money lost on tax evasion and tax avoidance. Absolutely. Uh, but look at Labour's election manifesto in 97, 2001, 2005. They pledged to do that. That is an easy pledge to make pre-election. It's much harder to get the money in uh, on the scale you need. Have a financial transactions tax? Absolutely. 
but as has been explored many times, you need that to be enforced globally, not just in the UK, or else people will just move somewhere else uh, to make their transactions. So, Nick, thanks for those propositions. But you can see why it remains a problem about how you raise money on the scale required. Noah Keat, I'm delighted I'll be attending the King's Place show for the first time, the Lodin, on June the 8th, two days after my final exams finish. Oh, well, what a way to have a celebration. I'm writing today to challenge your argument that politicians can never successfully return to the political stage after leaving. For example, Michael Portillo, Ed Balls. What about Peter Mandelson being an exception to this rule? I'm currently reading his memoir, The Third Man. Yeah, it's a lively memoir that's really fun to read. And it's striking just how much Gordon Brown depended on him coming back to the cabinet in 2008. That is a good example that kind of is an exception to the rule. Uh, Mandelson left British politics in, in, in despair, really, having been sacked several times by Tony Blair. Extraordinary when you think about it. Well, twice he was sacked. Went off to Europe to be a commissioner and then returned. But of course, he was in the House of Lords, which is not a base for a full return. So he did come back. He was hugely significant. When he came back, the attempted coups against Gordon Brown, utterly deranged coups at a point where Brown was dealing with the 2008 financial crash, largely stopped because of Mandelson. Thanks, Noah. See you there part of your celebration on June the 8th. Anna Barnett, uh, I, I enjoy the Rock and Roll Politics podcast, which I listen to while sorting out laundry, though I'm also a runner. So maybe I could have a flexible role in your cooperative. Yeah, you can ju- uh, join Joe, who does his laundry, uh, Laundry Joe, while listening to the podcast, Anna. Um, but yeah, absolutely. There's no need for all of us to have fixed roles in this co-op being formed. Anyway, Anna says, you talk sometimes about the power of the right-wing media to shape a narrative. Yeah, it's an absolute dimension of British politics. Look at how some papers have relentlessly targeted Keir Starmer recently. My question is whether you think that Labour could ever win an election without having the support of the right-wing newspapers. Well, I've no doubt at all that the support of newspapers like The Sun in 97 was important to Labour's victory and the neutering of the others. They weren't as relentless in their attacks. The answer is, on the basis of the past, Anna, yes, but not by big majorities. So, for example, in 1974, Harold Wilson faced an onslaught from the newspapers, but managed to win just. uh, He got five more seats than the Conservatives in 1974. He got fewer votes, actually, but got in. But I think it's much harder, even in today's fractured media, uh, where there is a chorus of newspapers, which then influence the way a very currently poorly led and timid BBC view politics. It's quite tough to get through those barriers, which is why I think people like Alistair Campbell were really important for Blair dealing with the newspapers and Gordon Brown's people similarly. Anyway, thank you, Anna. Uh, Geraldine Henley, Uh, Looking forward to your June show. I'll see you there, Geraldine. Um, I have a very strong feeling about Wes Streeting as a possible leader if Keir Starmer goes. Uh, Various Tory politicians and commentators are impressed with him. I think he cuts through, has tremendous energy and answers questions. Yeah, well, this is 
Geraldine, you confirm my view, you see, just by even raising the possibility of his departure. Keir Starmer has opened up talk about potential successors, of which West Streeting is one. But West Streeting has to be very careful that he's not viewed constantly now through the prism of being a potential successor, because those seen in such a light quite often don't succeed in getting the crown. He is one of the few members on the Labour front bench who have the capacity to use humour, tonal variety in engaging with interviews on sometimes quite tricky themes. But it's very early in his career. He's only pretty new to being Shadow Health Secretary and he faces quite a lot of challenges in outlining Labour's health policy and his wider policies. He also needs to be to avoid the trap of being called the Blairite where streeting. As I say, leaders need to seize the future and not be defined by the past. But he is certainly somebody who I think would be the media's candidate if he were to stand, if there were to be a vacancy. Two ifs. Thank you, uh, Geraldine. Now, over to the Irish question, not from my reflections, uh, but direct uh, from Ireland. First of all, the Reverend Canon Paul Arbuthnot, uh, who uh, is a regular listener, he listens, he tells me in this email, while mowing the lawn. And I bet you've got quite a big lawn to mow. Uh, He's in, in the Diocese of Cork, Cloyne and Ross. And here it is, very interestingly, direct, so to speak, rather than from uh, Westminster. The media has been awash with commentary, proclaiming a seismic shift and that the reunification of Ireland is imminent as a result of the rise of Sinn Féin. I would maintain that really isn't the case. In fact, the election was a case of plus a change, plus a même chose, excuse my French accent, um, Let's look at the cold facts. One, unionism is still the largest bloc in the Assembly, 37 unionist seats to 35 nationalists. More first preference votes were cast for pro-union parties than nationalist parties. Nationalism lost four seats at the election. Sinn Féin didn't gain a single seat in this election. Also, 27 seats in a 90-seat Assembly is hardly a cry for a border poll. The Alliance Party surge was centred around very unionist constituencies like North Antrim, East Antrim, where I'm from, and Lagan Valley, where the DUP is now strongest. This essentially means that the Alliance is de de facto pro-union and they're relying on unionist support. The unionist electorate is more flexible than the nationalist electorate. Nationalists vote for Sinn Féin and very little else. Unionists examine the plurality and vote accordingly. So, and Paul says, do you have any thoughts on the Northern Irish Assembly election results? Well, Paul, after those points, no, you're there and uh, have given a very forensic analysis of the outcome of the elections. However, it is uh, unquestionably the case that Brexit, and there are other factors, but Brexit has moved Northern Ireland closer to Ireland and further away economically from Great Britain. And that is quite a fundamental pull. I'll be interested to hear what you think about that. But thank you so much for um, giving such uh, information. 
Here's a sort of uh, a different view. Here in Dublin, I can't help but be surprised that the DUP did so well. They couldn't have shown more incompetent political judgment for their own supporters over the last five years. Not only backing Brexit, but then doubling down in preventing a soft Brexit. Exactly. Sorry, I'm reading out an email. Uh, I haven't got the name, uh, but you'll know who it is. And I'll read the name out next week um, because it's such a good point. The, the, the misjudgments of the DUP have been perverse in all of this. A lot of the coverage will say this is a key step to a united Ireland. But the real pity here is that what has been developing pre-Brexit was a workable compromise that a broad majority, North and South, were happy with. A lot of people here long for middle-of-the-road liberal northern unionists to find a strong political voice to form a cooperative bridge between Dublin and London. It sounds, you know, and obviously the posturing over Brexit has got in the way. It's very interesting. And I'm sorry, uh, for some reason, I haven't got the the, the name. Uh, But I will remind people next week. Thank you. From Dublin, live from Dublin. Dominique Joule, our regular French correspondent, says, I see that the protocol is in the news here in France again, this time bemoaning the threats of the UK government. Actually, Dominique, it's from parts of the UK government. The UK government is split over what to do, I think. And the lie that's being circulated that it's the EU that's erected a border in the Irish Sea. I know part of the fantasy of the Brexiteers, it's the EU that's done this. They really are scared to follow through the consequences of their own decisions. There is further head scratching here in France and some indignation in relation to the recent intervention of Lord Frosty with his assertion that Joe Biden is a mere interested observer, which of course ignores the fact that the current US president was energetically engaged in the Northern Ireland peace process and the Good Friday Agreement from the very beginning. Yeah, uh, Frosty, uh, I did warn you all that Frosty resigned when the going got tough, when he had power as Brexit minister. And I said he had become a commentator. It's much easier for delusional fantasists to sort of write from the sidelines. It's driving me crazy. But Frosty Frost is, um, we're going to have to put up with it. He's going to be around for a bit. But that's the view from France. You see, France can see more clearly what Britain's up to sometimes than Britain can. Thank you, Dominica. Keith of Finchley, could you explore the general perception that Labour didn't do well enough in the local elections, taking into account that so many anti-government votes went to the Lib Dems and others? The answer is just look at the share of the vote. And it was not good enough. Uh, Labour got 35% midterm against one of the most uh, chaotic governments in the midst of a cost of living crisis. And they got 35% of the share of the vote. It should be much higher midterm, even though obviously the issue of a split anti-Tory vote has arisen yet again uh, with those going to the Lib Dems. In a general election, it depends on how that works out. In 97, of course, when there was an informal arrangement with the Lib Dems, it worked massively against the Conservatives when Labour won a landslide. But they need to, Labour needs to get a much higher percentage of the share of the vote for that to have any... I mean, we're not in 97 territory. If you want a comparison, we're in 74 territory, hung parliament economic crisis, disillusionment with the major parties, liberals rising as they were then, Lib Dems now. Thank you, Keith of Finchley. We're going over to Wales because Mike Rees rightly says, I continue to be a huge fan of your podcast. Oh, thank you. I listen to it religiously every Tuesday morning. However, I must make a plea. 
for you to give a little time to the situation in Wales. In your latest podcast, you examine Scotland and Northern Ireland. I've done that again today, haven't I? Uh, clearly, it's a possibility that both will break away. But if this were to happen, where does this leave Wales? There's no appetite here for independence. Why this is the case is an interesting question in itself. Is the language spoken by only around 20% of the population a factor? Although not a nationalist in any shape or form, I would worry that Wales will be submerged by a Tory England in such a scenario. I also think Wales has a story to tell regarding recent elections. It's not long ago that Wales had seven... UKIP members in the Assembly, all of the Senate, as called in uh, Wales, all of whom lost their seats last year, when Labour had their best ever results since devolution. Yeah, it, it is really interesting. Why is this? Drakeford's handling of the pandemic? Or are there other reasons which could be helpful to Starmer? Thank you so much, Mike, for raising... We should all focus a bit on, on, on Wales. You're absolutely right. What are the implications for Wales? If I, I don't think Ireland's going to become unified anytime soon, partly for the reasons we've heard in the emails today. Scotland, I think, with the SNP continuing to dominate, I think there's, I loathe referendums, but I think there might have to be a second one. And now on that issue of Scotland, over to Andrew Alderson from Edinburgh. Your brief mention of Labour doing a bit better in Scotland needs context. My favourite word, Andrew, second favourite word after consequences, context. Labour were clever in setting expectations in terms of coming second. In fact, it's the second worst Labour election result in Scotland since 45. They won 1945. Blimey, I didn't realise that. They won 21.7% of first preference votes. The Lib Dems and Greens made significant gains. Yeah, well... uh, Going back to Keith of Finchley, if the protest votes go elsewhere, the ruling party can walk it. Thank you for putting it into context, Andrew. That's certainly a contrary view. People keep on saying to me, oh, Labour do much better in Scotland. So there you have it, direct from Edinburgh, at least from Andrew's perspective. Oh, yeah. Also, we've got here uh, from Stefan Mallard. On the issue of Scotland, I don't think a referendum second referendum will solve the issue for Labour. If they vote for independence, um, that will cause a crisis for uh, Labour and certainly a Labour government if uh, Labour were to ever offer a second referendum. If they vote to remain in the UK, 40 to 45 percent will still have voted to leave. Uh, This will be enough for the SNP to still govern as the Scottish party in protest against the lack of referendums. Yeah, he wonders whether there's room for uh, another pro-independence party in Scotland apart from the SNP. I don't think there is. I think Labour will remain, Stefan, a unionist party. But how you deal with this conundrum that without that second referendum, the SNP could always argue Westminster's preventing Scotland from having its voice. And it kind of transcends all other arguments about tax and spend, and public service delivery. It is, it is a circuitous kind of answer. And while we're on this theme, one more uh, attempt at addressing the conundrum from Mark Holling in gorgeous North Berwick uh, in East Lothian. I agree with you that referenda rarely achieve anything. But what the 2014 one did give us was a divided Scotland. Another referendum will further entrench that. I'm dreading it. Yeah, me too. I dread all referendums, uh, Mark. And I've tended to vote tactically most of my 
life. Is there scope for the non-separatist parties pushing a different agenda, which has been billed as Devo Max? Yeah, I think, uh, Mark, you know, it's going to be interesting to see what Gordon Brown comes up with his review of constitutional reform, including the Scottish Parliament, the English regions and so on, whether some more coherent form of uh, power that makes sense across the UK, Devo Max, might make sense. But I but I think, Mark, what will happen is that the SNP will still play this card. Well, hold on a second. We want independence. And you're stopping us even letting us put that to the people. So Devo Max, well, let's see what happens. I mean, Brown remains a sharp reader of the rhythms of British politics. Um, but, but, but the SNP's dominance, I think, challenges even his capacity to read the rhythms. Oh, Mark says, uh, plan to come along to your show at the Edinburgh Fringe. Great. Your first date is my birthday. Oh, well, at, at birthday celebration on the first date um, at the space. Anyway, one way or another, see you there, Mark. Thank you for your question. Let's uh, move on. Uh, I'm going to just do a few very quickly now because, God, even those of you who've done a 10K will be finishing. Uh, John Baudler, it seems that both Sweden and Finland are set to join NATO without a democratic mandate. When should governments seek the consent of the people? And when should they simply say, we're the democratically elected government, we're going to do what we think is right? Brilliant question, John, because I think something as profound as that does merit wider consultation. But because I loathe referendums, I'm more inclined to the latter, that a democratically elected government can make the move and then be held accountable at an election. I'm just allergic, John, to referendums. What do you think? Scott MacDonald, does the Labour leadership meddling in selection processes do more damage than it does good? Scott highlights a whole range of different ways in which there is this balance between the local and the central Now, my view is, Scott, I think he's referring to Wakefield, where there's going to be this huge by-election and uh, Keir Starmer's office has kind of limited who could go forward as potential candidates. I think, to be honest, when the stakes are so high in by-elections, the uh, leadership office has every right to intervene. These candidates are standing locally, but representing symbolically the National Party. And now this is very controversial because localism is so popular. But I see so many poor candidates getting into seats at uh, Westminster. Um, But it has to be done sensitively. And I'm told it was all a bit cack-handed, but whatever. I believe in the principle that uh, when stakes are high, leaders have the right to intervene and then be held to account for it. Uh, Scott raises the point, is alienating local members and local activists worth it? It's really tricky if you uh, do that. But I think that the stakes are so high, the key is to put in a good candidate. Now, whether uh, a leader's office is a good judge of that is a different question. But I think they have the right to make the judgment, um, if you know what I mean. Thank you for that. Nick Jones, thanks for continuing to provide one of the highlights of my week. Thank you, Nick. I don't know whether that means the rest of your week is pretty grim or whether you have a brilliant time and this is still a highlight. I know you have strong views on the primacy of economic factors regarding voting intentions. Yeah, I do. 
uh, the traditional right and left. But do you think the recent local election results give more evidence that an equally important divide is between those politicians or voters with broadly more conservative small c views on social, libertarian and foreign policy immigration compared with those more liberal and internationalist views? I don't know. I don't know. I think in the end, the economic questions overwhelm all others. Incidentally, that includes Brexit, which has been an economic disaster. Of course, there is an internationalist dimension. But thank you, Nick. Uh, Nick relates it, by the way, to electoral reform and the electoral reform special that I'm still getting therapy to prepare for. Thank you for that, Nick. I will come, Nick, and, and, and do join in when that moment arises. Now, Simon Lockyer writes to say, any news on frosty socks as Brexit is back on the agenda? Yeah, I'm going to get in contact with the um, great listener uh, who is has got me three pairs of Union Jack socks. I don't know if Frosty owned them first, Simon. Uh, when you say frosty socks, I don't think I'm going to wear frosty socks. I might wear, I might go around in a frosty uniform. You know, he a uh, very uh, rather conventional suit. and uh, uh, But anyway, yeah, I'll let you know when I've got hold of the Union Jacks. There will be a uh, photo uh, of them. Now, this electoral reform thing keeps on coming. Keith from the Midlands, he kind of highlights all the range of different political positions and suggests that electoral reform is the only way of getting kind of fair representation. So he says the Conservative Party... Right by varying amounts, currently more right than usual. Labour, left by varying amounts, currently less left. Lib Dems, centre-left. Greens, environmental left. SNP, independence, but centre-left. Ply Comry, uh, independence, but centre-left. And he says, therefore, there is a majority on the centre-left, but the Tories always win <laughs> elections. And that's why we need electoral reform. Yeah, interesting. Um, I would challenge at times some of those definitions, but that's a really interesting argument for electoral uh, reform. Uh, Thank you for that. Over to Ryan McMullen. He's uh, live from San Francisco. It seems like that much of the commentary seems to be coalescing around the idea of a hung parliament being the outcome of the next election. I've long expected this to be the case, given the 2019 election was an outlier. It's easy to forget most of the last decade, the UK government was either a coalition or using a a confidence of supply, minority government. If there's a hung parliament next time, what do the smaller parties, Lib Dem and SNP, demand of Labour in return for their support or participation in government? It seems to me this could be really quite important with regard to electoral reform, constitutional reform and Europe. Hope you're having a good time in San Francisco, uh, Ryan. The answer is that I think there will be quite a lot of constitutional reform and maybe electoral reform in a hung parliament. The SNP will be, although a big parliamentary party in the next parliament, Westminster Parliament, will not have direct negotiating power. Uh, I think a Labour prime minister would work on the assumption the SNP could not be seen at least early on to bring down a Labour government and to produce a Conservative one. But you're right. I think, for example, on Europe, there could well be some progress made in that kind of context.
I've been going on for some time now. Uh, great questions from, I'm just going to kind of summarise them speedily and not really answer them, but I'll come back to them, I promise you. Andrew, Rob Rogers, great questions about whether politicians might get better if they were paid more. I suspect, Andrew, salary is not a factor in the quality of politicians we're getting at the moment. I think it's the way MPs are selected and the broader climate. A fantastic description from Dr. Ryan Kemp, who lives in Bonn in Germany, about the problems of the German system of the uh, NHS and uh, in the insurance system, which means that some people don't get treatment, that there are bureaucratic obstacles to getting treatment. And he thinks the key is not to follow a kind of German model, but to raise more resources for the NHS and poses the internal question, how do we get those uh, resources from John Hodgson, who listens while walking his dog. Oh, yeah, this is really interesting. That's John Hodgson, uh, who received another email from a listener who thinks he knows John Hodgson. Have I got that right? I think so. Tom Lincoln. Uh, anyway, apologies. Tom wants a podcast on where power lies. It's a brilliant, rich theme, Tom, and I will deliver it. Jim for Liverpool has a slogan for Labour that he thinks will be quite effective, make Britain grow again. Buxton Phil wonders what will happen when the Queen finally takes a bow, whether that will save Johnson, what impact it will have uh, more widely uh, on the union. Huge questions, Buxton Phil, for another time. It will be a huge moment when that bow comes in whatever form. So there's a few. Sorry if I didn't read yours out or didn't answer it in any depth, but as you can see, I'm getting hundreds of them and keep them coming in because it absolutely shapes not only the way I think, but the future of Britain uh, in our cooperative together. And thank you so much for tuning in this time. So if you could leave a review, only a positive one, please. Negative ones just make me miserable. I'm not that I'd get them, but um, <laughs> I might do. Um, and yeah, see you King's Place uh, Monday, June the 8th or in Edinburgh or on Patreon if you're up for any of that. And yeah, we got through a lot, but this is going to be one hell of a week, you know, inflation, cost of living, the Irish protocol, all the themes that will shape Britain in the years ahead are erupting around us. So we must gather again next week to make sense of it all. In the meantime, as much as you can do in these crazy times, have a great week. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. Bye.